Who knew the bees could be such an educational tool? Their complex dance, their humming, and even the height that they dance at is calculated. And Moran, one of the main characters in the first book of the trilogy, Malloy, Malone Dies and the Unnameable, thinks, quote, I was more than ever stupefied by the complexity of this innumerable dance, involving doubtless other determinants of which I had not the slightest idea. And I said with rapture, here is something I can study all my life and never understand. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'm discussing the first half of June's book, the trilogy Malloy, Malone Dies and The Unnameable by Samuel Beckett, translated from the French by the author and Patrick Bowles and published in 1951. So each month I take a book, I split it in two and discuss it on the second and last Fridays. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes so please leave a comment or start a conversation below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to page 209, the paragraph beginning, quote, I fear I may have fallen asleep again. There's quite a bit of adult language used in the novel, but I've removed any bad language for the podcast. And there are themes of a sexual nature throughout the work and some violence, although not explicit, but do check the content of the novel before continuing. So we start off with a man reflecting on his life. It's a first-person narration. There's one very long paragraph for 90 pages. He seems to be an invalid and is relying on his sense memory to reflect on his experiences of the world. He seems to be rejecting the notion that something needs to be experienced in order to live. He's inhabiting this very rich interior world. He recalls the outdoor experience up a hill of seeing two walkers he calls simply A and C with such poetry and inner imagination. Have a listen to this, quote. He hadn't seen me. I was perched higher than the road's highest point and flattened what is more against a rock the same colour as myself, that is, grey. The rock he probably saw. He gazed around as if to engrave the landmarks on his memory and must have seen the rock in the shadow of which I crouched like Balaka or Sordello. He recalls being a crippled youth and seeing his mother on a bicycle. She is very old and infirm, and he recalls, I believe, taking money from her. I may be wrong. Quote, it was I who took the keys from under the pillow. That's his mum's pillow. Who took the money out of the drawer, who put the key back under the pillow. But I didn't come for money. I think there was a woman who came each week. Make of those sentences what you will. Now he recounts how on one visit to his mother, he was arrested by a police officer for resting his crutches against his bicycle as he was cycling to her. Now after remembering that his name is Malloy, they let him go and he feels a certain amount of guilt for his actions, even though he is guiltless. Quote, what is certain is this, that I never rested in that way again, my feet obscenely resting on the earth, my arms on the handlebars, and on my arms my head, rocking and abandoned. It is indeed a deplorable sight, a deplorable example for the people who so need to be encouraged in their bitter toil, and to have before their eyes manifestations of strength only, of courage and of joy, without which they might collapse, and at the end of the day, and roll on the ground, I have only to be told what good behaviour is and I am well behaved within the limits of my physical possibilities and so I have never ceased to improve from this point of view for I, I used to be intelligent and quick. 
I love that rep repetition of I maybe indicates uncertainty. Now the police here reflect what should society be, strong and courageous. Malloy is expressing his behaviour as if he were operating in a police state. And to me, this experience obviously had quite a profound effect on him and has shaped a view of the world, unless he's being incredibly ironic or sarcastic, but I really don't think so. Now, continuing the narrative, he goes on his way to his mother and he contemplates the next life as the body decomposes. Quote, to decompose is to live too. I know, I know, don't torment me, but one sometimes forgets. And of that life too, I shall tell you perhaps one day. Now he sees a barge being pulled by a donkey and a flock of sheep, either going to the field or to slaughter. Malloy accidentally runs over a dog. Now initially there's pandemonium, but the owner, Luce, explains it was an accident. She asked Malloy to help bury it. Quote, she needed me to help her get rid of her dog and I needed her. I've forgotten for what. Will we find out? Is it nefarious? Now, if I haven't mentioned before, he has a lame leg and he can only see out of one eye. Quote, only one functioning more or less correctly. He wakes up to find that his beard has been shaved off and he ponders whether he is closer to his mother. Quote, she seemed far away, my mother, far away from me, and yet I was a little closer to her than the night before, if my reckoning was accurate. But was it? Now, to me, it reminds me of the voyage of Odysseus to return to Penelope, and in turn, maybe a nod to Joyce's Ulysses. Slowly, his possessions get returned to him, but they are subtly changed. His hat is without the correct lace, and there's a replacement for his knife. This one has a safety feature, which actually, ironically, causes him more injuries. Possessions are important to Malloy. They define him. Now, there's an interesting part where he describes a valueless stone, which is imbued with great value, which gets taken. Quote, my sucking stone in particular was no longer there, but sucking stones abound on our beaches when you know where to look for them. And I deemed it wise to say nothing about it, all the more so as he would have been capable after an hour's argument of going and fetching me from the garden a completely unsuckable stone. There'll be more on that later. Now Luce asks him to live with her in return, quote, all she asked was to feel me near her, with her, and the right to contemplate from time to time this extraordinary body, both at rest and in motion. He suspects Luce of drugging him since he has a few collapses and also he, quote, bounds, which he never does. He suspects Luce, quote, is a man or an androgyne due to her physical flatness and somewhat hairy face. He thinks she is spying on him and he reflects on his first sexual experience with a woman called Ruth and reflects whether, quote, his life has been devoid of love or whether he really met with it in Ruth. Now, ultimately, he leaves Luce, quote, one warm and airless night and journeys, quote, towards the east, towards the sun. He steals some silver teaspoons from the house and a small object that he doesn't understand the function of, quote, I could therefore puzzle over it endlessly without the least risk, for to know nothing is nothing, not to want to know anything likewise, but to be beyond knowing anything, to know you are beyond knowing anything, that is when peace enters in. Now, the book hasn't got any paragraph breaks. It's like Malloy can't stop his mind whirring and whirring and speaking and speaking. 
There's a long passage on how Malloy distributes sucking stones between the four pockets of his jacket. Uh, interestingly, he decides on a solution that is mentally agreeable but bodily disagreeable as it leads to an imbalance of stones in his greatcoat. He wrestles with whether it is better to soothe the mind or the body. Quote, I felt the weight of the stones dragging me now to one side, now to the other. So it was something more than a principle I abandoned when I abandoned the equal distribution. It was a bodily need, but to suck the stones in the way I've described, not haphazard, but with method was also, I think, a bodily need. Personally, I think both were mental needs. Would he really feel that imbalance or is it in his head? Is he blind to mental anguish and blaming on the physical body? Or is he in some kind of denial about his mental state? What do you think? Now we move to a tale of him visiting a forest and meeting whom he believes is a charcoal burner man. He ends up bashing him in the head with his crutch and then making sure he's still breathing before moving on. Now, about his mother, he reflects on how his mother is not in the forest, that he is always going to or coming from his mother. He really does have a mother fixation. Quote, all my life, I think I had been going to my mother with the purpose of establishing our relations on a less precarious footing. And when I was with her and I often succeeded, I left her without having done anything. And when I was no longer with her, I was again on my way to her, hoping to do better the next time. In the forest, he's surprised to hear a gong and then he finally moves out of the forest into the plain and then we go on to chapter two. And we have a completely different character and I can see lots of paragraph breaks in chapter two. This is a first person narration by a character called Moran. So very different, very short, concise sentences, completely different to Malloy's long musings on sucking stones and his mother and bodily functions. Now this Moran guy is an agent and he's called on by a colleague called Gaber to quote, see about Malloy. This is one Sunday. He describes the world with such poetry. This is him relaxing in his garden just before the call from Gaber. Quote, all was still, not a breath. From my neighbor's chimneys, the smoke rose straight and blue. None but tranquil sounds, the clicking of mallet and ball, a rake on pebbles, a distant lawnmower, the bell of my beloved church, and birds, of course, blackbird and thrush, their song sadly dying, vanquished by the heat, and leaving dawn's high boughs for the bush's gloom. Contentedly, I inhaled the scent of my lemon verbena. Gaber tells him he must leave today with his son to do the job. Moran muses, quote, I told him the job did not interest me and that the chief would do better to call on another agent. He wants it to be you, God knows why, said Gaber. Now, is Moran some kind of spy? We never really know for true. He misses mass because of the Gaber meeting and suspects his son of missing mass and playing elsewhere. He's very suspicious of his poor son and very strict. Later, Moran meets Father Ambrose and asks for communion. He hopes he won't notice he's been drinking beer. Quote, It seemed evident to me he suspected nothing. Or did it amuse him to see how far I would go? Or did it tickle him to have me commit a sin? I summarise the situation briefly as follows. If knowing I have beer taken, he gives me the sacrament, his sin, if sin there be, is as great as mine. I was therefore risking little. He's certainly a very religious man who worries about sin a lot. 
as I say, he's very strict on this poor son. When asking him to pack for the trip to see Malloy, he says to his son, quote, we leave this evening, I said in substance, on a journey, put on your school suit, the green. But it's blue, Papa, he said. Blue or green, put it on, I said violently. I want it on, I went on. Put in your little knapsack, the one I gave you for your birthday. Your toilet things, one shirt, one pair of socks and seven pairs of drawers, do you understand? Which shirt, Papa, he said. It doesn't matter which shirt, I cried, any shirt. Which shoes am I to wear, he said. You have two pairs of shoes, I said, one for Sundays and one for weekdays. And you ask me which you are to wear, I sat up. I want none of your lip, I said. What a horrible disciplinarian. Incidentally, there's no traditional dialogue tags. Obviously, Beckett considers himself in the elite of writers who can get away without any dialogue tags. I'm being tongue in cheek. Now this man, Moran, doesn't trust anyone. He works out how much beer should be in the pantry from the previous week and checks that they're all correctly there, and they are. And he doesn't allow his son to take his precious stamp album with him. I dislike this man intensely. Now when the son storms off in a half, Moran thinks very highly of himself, quote, another less master of himself than I of myself would have intervened. He then goes on to describe Molloy. It's such an interesting description. I would have imagined Molloy like this from Molloy's first person narrative. The description reminds me a little of the character Ignatius in Confederacy of Dunces, if you've read that. Quote, even in open country, he seemed to be crashing through jungle. He did not so much walk as charge. In spite of this, he advanced but slowly. He swayed to and fro like a bear. He rolled his head, uttering incomprehensible words. He was massive and hulking to the point of misshapenness. He's really shining a new light on Malloy. It's like he's taken this 2D image and given it a bit more depth. Moran even states this multifaceted view of Malloy thus, quote, the fact was there were three, no four Malloys. He that inhabited me, my character of the same, Gabers and the man of flesh and blood somewhere awaiting me. Truly four dimensional character. Reminds me of that Picasso drawing of the woman walking down the stairs where you can see in one image all these different sides to the character. Now Moran is so self-righteous. Quote, my son rarely spoke to me unless I spoke to him. He figures your horrible father. And when I did so, he answered but lamely and as if it were with reluctance. And yet with his little friends, when he thought I was out of the way, he was incredibly voluble. That my presence had the effect of dampening this disposition was far from displeasing me. Of course, Moran, but why, Prater? Not one person in a hundred knows how to be silent and listen, no, nor even to conceive what such a thing means. Yet only then can you detect, beyond the fatuous clamour, the silence of which the universe is made. What? Justifying your lack of communication with your son as a benefit so that you can listen to the universe? What crazy thinking. Why don't you do that when your son's not around? Rant over. No more talk of Moran being horrible to his son anymore. It can be safely assumed, I think. Now, Moran seems to be linked to Malloy in a number of ways. Firstly, the first two letters of his name, Moran, Malloy. And two, he carries keys like Malloy's sucking stones that in this case do cause him to gate. Quote, its weight gives me a list to the right. Oh, and there's three things. He has a hat. His elastic means his hat doesn't fall off, whereas Malloy lost the lace tie for his hat. 
So perhaps they are the same character. Now he and his poor son set out in the middle of the night through dark woods on their Malloy mission, whatever that mission may be. They're on the way to, quote, Malloy country. It's clear he's writing this account for his employer. Quote, and if it has not the good fortune to give satisfaction to my employer, if there are passages that give offence to him and to his colleagues, then so much the worse for them all, for there is no worse for me. He is also in some way doing the mission to pay a penance. Listen to this interesting quote. He says, quote, it is one of the features of this penance. Possibly for the drinking at the communion. Moran, like us, muses on what he's actually supposed to be finding in this Malloy case. Quote, it is hard to say. I was looking for what was wanting to make Gaber's statement complete. I felt he must have told me what to do with Malloy once he was found. My particular duties never terminated with the running to earth. That would have been too easy, but I had always to deal with the client in one way or another, according to instructions. Such operations took on a multitude of forms, from the most vigorous to the most discreet. The Yerk affair, which took me nearly three months to conclude successfully, was over on the day I succeeded in possessing myself of his tie-pin and destroying it. Establishing contact was the least important part of my work. I found Yerk on the third day. I was never required to prove I had succeeded. My word was enough. Udi, that's his boss, Gaber's boss as well, Yudi must have had some way of verifying. Sometimes I was asked for a report. Again, a type in an object is the purpose of the quest. Objects are important. Now in his next example, he had to bring a person to a specific place. He calls his clients, quote, patients. And he's already forgotten what he's supposed to do when he meets Malloy and that he would, quote, devise something when he sees him. It reminds me a little bit of Kay in the book the Castle by Kafka, if you've read that. A slightly purposeless quest. Now he sends his son off to buy a second-hand bicycle. Why is Moran heading out in the dead of night across country with his son to find Malloy? Why not just take a bus or a car during the daytime? We never really get an answer to that question. Now while he's waiting for his son to return, a man appears in the woods with a big club. Now, is this the charcoal burner from Malloy's account? Is this Malloy? Is that a stick he's carrying his crutch? Are these the same words described in Malloy's account? The only reference Malloy makes to ascertain this assumption is, quote, I say charcoal burner, but I really don't know. I see smoke somewhere. The paraglass are now becoming longer as he gets into this interior monologue, very similar to Malloy's account. Is he becoming Malloy? He's approached by another man who wants to know whether Malone has seen an old man with a stick pass by. Now, presumably, this is the man from a few pages ago. Later, he finds the man, quote, stretched on the ground, his head in a pulp. Is this the man that Malloy dealt, quote, a good dint on the skull with his crutch? Or perhaps Moran dealt the fatal blow to this man himself. That is what we are led to believe. But just as sometimes it is in life, it is not set in stone that Moran committed this act. Quote, I can still see the hand coming towards me, pallid, opening and closing, as if self-propelled. I do not know what happened then. But a little later, perhaps a long time later, I found him stretched on the ground, his head in a pulp. I'm sorry I cannot indicate more clearly how this result was obtained. It would have been something worth reading. But it is not at this late stage of my relation that I intend to give way to literature. 
I myself was unscathed except for a few scratches. I did not discover till the following day. I bent over him. Now, I wonder if this is the Malone from the second novel, Malone Dies. Will we see things from this dead Malone's perspective, perhaps? He drags the body to his camp and covers it with leaves. Then, mirroring Malloy's obsession with sucking stones, Moran loses his keys and spends a while collecting them from the forest floor. So we have this keys and stones, keys symbolising a locking down, a man-made oppressiveness, maybe, just like Moran, and sucking stones, maybe the opposite, a natural, smooth, calming, a bit of a rolling stone, perhaps like Malloy, maybe a bit simplistic. I wonder why the implied author picked these two objects to describe his characters. And do they describe these characters? What do you think? Now, Malloy and Jacques can be contrasted. Malloy is desperate to get to his mother and Jacques is desperate to get away from his father. However, just as I'm thinking this, his son does actually eventually return saying he had problems with his bicycle, which Moran doesn't believe. Moran thinks, quote... He was clumsy, stupid, slow, dirty, untruthful, deceitful, prodigal, unfilial, but he did not abandon me. Sorry, did I say I wouldn't say that all the horrible things he's saying about his son again? I'm sorry. That was uh, bad of me. Anyway, what a surprise that he would say those things. They finally get to Balibar, which is Malloy's town, after, quote, weeks. Um, Moran spies a shepherd in a field with an incredibly faithful dog. Now, I'm thinking that Moran would like his son to act like this dog, but the son escapes on the bicycle with lots of money. I'm thinking, go, Jacques, be a free bird. Moran thinks and hopes that, quote, Malloy, whose country this was, would come to me, who had not been able to go to him, because he lost Gaber's instructions on how to find Malloy, and grow to be a friend and like a father to me and help me do what I had to do so that Yudi would not be angry with me and would not punish me. So Moran lives in this wood now in a manner almost preparing for death. Quote, I shall soon lose consciousness altogether. When who should arrive but Gaber, dressed to the nines and full of health and vigour, albeit hungry, Moran asks whether Yudi, remember their chief of their agency, is angry, but Gaber says, no, no, he's not. He says that Yudi said something, but Moran cuts him off, inquiring further about Yudi, although he's not named, and I'm presuming this, and whether he may have changed. But Gaber begins to walk away. It's all very surreal. Moran overtakes him, quote, in spite of my weakness and sick leg. What was it Yudi said? Says Moran, screaming at Gaber. He responds with, quote, he said, life is a thing of beauty and a joy forever. He brought his face nearer mine. A joy forever, he said. A thing of beauty. Moran and a joy forever. He smiled. I closed my eyes. Smiles are all very nice in their own way. Very heartening, but at a reasonable distance. I said, do you think he meant human life? I listened. Perhaps he didn't mean human life, I said. I opened my eyes. I was alone. There's that humour again. Smiles are nice, at a reasonable distance, no one wants the over-smile. That's just creepy and a bit sinister. He goes on and touches on a theme that may have been close to the author's heart, living as he did in France, yet clearly having such strong roots in Ireland. Quote, I was alone, my hands were full of grass and earth. I had torn up unwittingly, was still tearing up. I was literally uprooting. I desisted, yes. The second I realised what I had done, what I was doing, such a nasty thing. I desisted from it. I opened my hands. They were soon empty. 
Now he heads back home alone, even though Gaber didn't tell him to drop the Malloy case, by the way. Perhaps he was so perturbed by this literal uprooting. Quote, I didn't get far. It's the first step that counts. The second counts less. That must be an allusion to that, quote, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Common saying that originated from a Chinese proverb ascribed to Lao Tzu. Even the longest and most difficult ventures have a starting point, something which begins with one first step. Now it takes a whole winter for him to travel home. He does say he was, quote, ordered home, presumably by Yudi. Now, incidentally, Yudi in Mandarin means to deliver by mail, which is how Moran received his summons, albeit by Gaber, the messenger. On his way home, he muses on many philosophical and religious questions. And in particular, he muses greatly on the habits of bees, their complex dancing, humming, and even the height that they dance at, communicating something unknowable to him. Quote, I was more than ever stupefied by the complexity of this innumerable dance involving doubtless other determinants of which I had not the slightest idea. And I said with rapture, here is something I can study all my life and never understand. And all during this long journey home, when I racked my mind for a little joy in store, the thought of my bees and their dance was the nearest thing to comfort, for I was still eager for my little joy from time to time. And I admitted with good grace the possibility that this dance was after all no better than the dances of the people of the West. Frivolous, and meaningless. But for me, sitting near my sun-drenched hives, it would always be a noble thing to contemplate. Too noble ever to be solid by the cogitations of a man like me, exiled in his manhood. And I would never do my bees the wrong I had done my God, to whom I had been taught to ascribe my angers, fears, desires, and even my body. Well, great philosophy, Moran. And he obviously feels this incredible guilt. Is that for the drinking, the murder? One of the final trials on the way back, he has to persuade a farmer he isn't trespassing on his land and tells him he's visiting the turdy Madonna. He finally arrives home to find his hens and bees dead and no sign of Martha, but his son is at home sleeping. And then one day, Gaber approaches him wanting a report. He does write one, quote, They were the longest, loveliest days of all the year. I lived in the garden. I have spoken of a voice telling me things. I was getting to know it better now, to understand what it wanted. It did not use the words that Moran had been taught when he was little and that he in his turn had taught to his little one. So at first I did not know what it wanted. But in the end I understood this language. I understand it. All wrong, perhaps. That is not what matters. It told me to write the report. Does this mean I am freer now than I was? I do not know. I shall learn. Then I went back into the house and wrote, it is midnight. The rain is beating on the windows. It was not midnight. It was not raining. Lies, lies, lies. Just as this author is writing lies, lies, lies about characters that don't exist, landscapes that don't exist and objects that don't exist. And there Malloy ends. What a strange and interesting first novel in this trilogy about those two characters, Malloy and Moran, who shared a number of characteristics. Their obsession with objects and a journey that is not fulfilled. Is that a Beckettian theme? I remember that in Waiting for Godot. Godot never appeared to Didi and Gogo. Indeed, I did read that some have supposed that Moran turns into the Malloy of the opening chapters. And I did mention they do share a lot of similarities, though I personally think maybe that's a bit far-fetched. Now let's dive into Malone dies then and find out who this Malone guy is. Was he the guy in the woods that was brutally murdered? probably by Moran. So, the novel starts with someone, 
he's dying. And they consider whether they will be dead by certain biblical calendar events such as Assumption. They're obviously steeped in Christian religious knowledge. I'll assume this Malone, alone, Malone, perhaps that, that's why he's called Malone. I, I'll assume this is the character Malone from the novel title. And I'll also assume it's a man dying, although it could be a female. Alone Malone is primarily an Irish male name. Now, just as I'm thinking this, considering his or her sex, he thinks of writing four stories, one about a man, one about a woman, one about an animal and one about a thing, but then thinks, quote, perhaps I shall put the man and the woman in the same story. There is so little difference between a man and a woman. So true, Malone, so true. He adds a clarification at the end, quote, between mine, I mean. The writing feels very modern and very prescient. And then he thinks of categorising his possessions. There we go again. That Beckettian theme. I don't know whether that's a word, by the way. Beckettian. Be Beckettian. I'm using it. I shall speak. Well, he thinks about possessions. Quote, I shall speak of the things that remain in my possession. That is a thing I've always wanted to do. It will be a kind of inventory. In any case, that is a thing I must leave to the very last moment so as to be sure of not having made a mistake. And then he muses on when will be the right time to do these two things the stories and the inventory because if he did it right away it could be quote too soon now i suppose he may add more ob objects to his life and then he's having to waste time redoing the inventory although in my opinion he needs to renounce all his possessions and live like a hermit joking aside it really does remind me of the vast catalogues of information that we can accrue as humans for example digital photos pensions wealth possessions stories and how best to decide on the best time to actually spend that wealth that we have accrued it reminds me of that feeling when when i actually look at all those digital photos that i take on my phone every day i've saved when will i actually get a chance to look through all those pictures properly in an organized fashion it's just a pipe dream Maybe Malone's having this similar feeling about his possessions. Maybe he's making a statement about the human condition that after a whole life, all we really leave behind are a few possessions and some memories. Now, I've only read one page of this novel. And there are all these amazing questions and ideas popping into my head already. I think it's going to be one of those really thought-provoking novels again. Thank you very much, Beckett. Anyway, I digress. Malone decides that in the time that remains, he will divide it into five, considering that with regard to the man and the woman story, there is not matter there for two. Quote, there is not matter there for two. One, his present state. Two, the man-woman story. Three, a thing story. Quote, a stone probably. Haha, <laughs> more stones. Four, an animal story. And five, an inventory. There's definite resonances with the five acts of a play and Malone even confirms this with him saying that it will be quote a full program. Now I guess we're going to hear these five parts then although it's Beckett so I can't really trust anything that he says or puts forward. So we start with quote present state story. He's in a room quote not in a hospital or a madhouse. Perhaps I was stunned with a blow on the head. In a forest, perhaps. Yes, now that I speak of a forest, I vaguely remember a forest. So my prediction that this could be the character killed by Moran is close. 
But instead, it appears that this Malone character is the person stunned by Malloy in the forest. Malone could be the charcoal burner, therefore linking this novel to the previous, although I'm sure we'll never know for certain. He thinks of himself as three parts, a trinity of parts, not the platonic dualist idea of body and mind. Quote, It is there I die, unbeknown to my stupid flesh. That which is seen, that which cries and writhes, my witless remains. Somewhere in this turmoil, thought struggles on. It is too wide of the mark. It too seeks me, as it always has, where I am not to be found. It too cannot be quiet. On others let it wreak its dying rage and leave me in peace. Such would seem to be my present state. So we've got those three parts. We've got his body, his, quote, witless remains, his thought, quote, too wide of the mark, and possibly his soul, quote, the me in leave me in peace. It reminds me a little of the tripartite humans in Pedro Paramo that I mentioned in a previous podcast. I believe it's quite a Christian philosophy when regarding the body. You have the body, the wits and the soul, but do correct me. Then we go into a section about a man called Sapperscat. Quote, the man's name is Sapperscat, like his father's. Christian name? I don't know. He will not need one. His friends call him Sappo. What friends? I don't know. A few words about the boy. This cannot be avoided. He was a precocious boy. He goes on. His parents, quote, made use of the spoken word in much the same way as the guard of a train makes use of his flags or of his lantern. Brilliant writing. Sappo is a, quote, simpleton, quote, Sappo loved nature, took an interest, this is awful, Sappo loved nature, took an interest in animals and plants and willingly raised his eyes to the sky day and night, but he did not know how to look at all these things. The looks he rained upon them taught him nothing about them. He confused the birds with one another and the trees and could not tell one crop from another crop. He did not associate the crocus with the spring, nor the chrysanthemum with Michaelmas. The sun, the moon, the planets and the stars did not fill him with wonder. He was sometimes tempted by the knowledge of these strange things, sometimes beautiful, that he would have about him all his life. But from his ignorance, of them he drew a kind of joy, as from all that went to swell the murmur. You are a simpleton. A little bit like the joy of those bees that just busy working on their own. I often think about the classification of flowers, trees and animals and whether knowledge of their names or the ability to interpret a bird's song can heighten a human experience or whether it diminishes the joy of the moment. For Malone, his ignorance draws, quote, joy. Now, I'm sure David Attenborough would argue that being able to understand and hear the mating call of, say, a cuckoo would enrich one's understanding of the world and of life. But is there a point at which knowledge of a process can destroy a joyful and pure experience? Like analysing why a joke is funny. What do you think? Is this what Malone is getting at? Anyway, we go back to Malone as he reflects on his last days lying in bed, contemplating the imminent arrival of death, of his aches and pains and objects that he may or may not own that he can see. Now, I presume we go on to the story of the man and the woman, quote, the Lamberts. Big Lambert is a pretty nasty-sounding pig butcher who is cruel to his young wife. They have three children, two boys, one of which is Sappo and a girl. Quote, In the filthy kitchen, with its earth floor, Sappo had his place. By the window, Big Lambert and his son left their work, came and shook his hand, then went away, leaving him with the mother and the daughter. 
Sapo thinks about the hens that come into the kitchen. Such a brilliant description of chickens and captures the angular, strange, madcap mannerisms of these creatures. Quote, Sometimes a hen, taking advantage of the open door, would venture into the room. No sooner had she crossed the threshold than she paused, one leg hooked up under her breech, her head on one side, blinking, anxious. Then reassured, she advanced a little further, jerkily, with concertina neck. Then, after Mrs Lambert chases her away, the hen appears again. Quote, this big, anxious, ashen bird poised irresolute on the bright threshold, then clucking and clawing behind the range and fidgeting her atrophied wings, soon to be sent flying with a broom and angry cries, as soon to return cautiously with little hesitant steps, stopping often to listen, opening and shutting her little bright black eyes. Wonderful writing. So Malone thinks of this alter ego, this young boy Sapo at the farmhouse. Quote, the face of Sapo as he stumbled away, now in the shadow of the venerable trees he could not name, now in the brightness of the waving meadow, so erratic was his course. The face of Sapo was as always grave, or rather expressionless. And when he halted, it was not the better to think, or the closer to pour upon his dream, but simply because the voice had ceased that told him to go on. Then with his pale eyes he stared down at the earth, blind to its beauty and to its utility, and to the little wild many-coloured flowers happy among the crops and weeds. But these stations were short-lived, for he was still young, and of a sudden he is off again, on his wanderings, passing from light to shadow, from shadow to light, unheedingly. Now Malone hears dogs in the distance, and there I have finished reading the first half of this trilogy up to page 209 of page 416. So what are my initial thoughts? Well, such an interesting book and a half so far and so beautifully written. I'm very interested to find out more about this curious Malone guy and about his alter ego, Sapo. Malloy was a fantastic opening book. We have this curious Malloy character seeking out his mother and not really finding her. And then this Moran guy who was tasked with finding Malloy but never does. And in the process of putting his heart and soul into finding him, accidentally gives up his son in the process through sheer doggedness and blindness to the fact that he is being a miserable and prescriptive father to his son. Why on earth? is Moran heading out in the dead of night across country with his son to find Malloy. Why not just take a bus or a car during the daytime? It's all very bizarre. Beckett does have many roots in the theatre of the absurd. I'm going to have a deep dive into this now and maybe that will prepare me better for looking at the second half. So, from Wikipedia. The Theatre of the Absurd, from the French Théâtre de l'Absurd, sorry about my French accent, is a post-world to designation for particular plays of absurdist fiction written by a number of primarily European playwrights in the late 1950s. It is also a term for the style of theatre the plays represent. The plays focus largely on ideas of existentialism and express what happens when human existence lacks meaning or purpose and communication breaks down. The structure of the plays is typically a round shape with the finishing point the same as the starting point. Malloy and Malone. Logical construction and argument give way to irrational and illogical speech and to the ultimate conclusion, silence. So yes, certainly we can see the round shape where Moran almost becomes a Malloy type figure at the end of the first book. It's a very circular shape. Let's not forget this book was published only six years after the end of the Second World War. The impact of this 
Madness obviously had a profound impact on work such as this, where the absurdity of human endeavour and ambition is a constant theme throughout the work. Malone is so keen to find this Malloy guy that he wrecks his whole family life in order to find him, only to end up getting an instruction to return home, which he blindly obeys. There's some very interesting ideas that came up from the novel. We've got that idea of the landscape right at the opening. Malloy's thinking about landscape is interesting. I think he rejects the idea that, that landscape has to be experienced in the first person. He's conjuring up his own remembrance in all its evocative experience for him. And indeed, perhaps Beckett from some cafe in Paris is recreating this Irish landscape in a very similar fashion. Is he rejecting the words worthy and idea that landscape has to be experienced in person? Malloy describes a man who climbs a mountain. Have a listen to this, quote, from there, he must have seen it all, the plain, the sea, and then these self-same hills, that same that some call mountains, indigo in places in the evening light, their serried ranges, cloven with hidden valleys that the eye divines from sudden shifts of colour, and then from other signs for which there are no words, nor even thoughts, but all are not divined, even from that height, and often where only one escarpment is discerned, and one crest, in reality there are two, two escarpments, two crests riven by a valley but now he knows these hills that is to say he knows them better and if ever again he sees them from afar it will be i think with other eyes and not only that but the within all that inner space one never sees the brain and heart and other caverns where thought and feeling dance their sabbath all that too quietly differently disposed later when thinking of his possessions malloy says quote Doubtless I shall speak of them later, when the time comes to draw up the inventory of my goods and possessions, unless I lose them between now and then. But even lost, they will have their place in the inventory of my possessions. But I'm easy in my mind. I shall not lose them. Very similar to Malone's wanting to create a, an inventory. And it seems here that Malloy is affirming that an experience of, in this case, possessions cannot be lost if it is in the mind. When reflecting on the characters A and C that he sees in the landscape, Malloy thinks, quote, A and C I never saw again, but perhaps I shall see them again. But shall I be able to recognise them? And am I sure I never saw them again? And what do I mean by seeing and seeing again? What is the difference between memory and sense experience? Good question. Throughout the book, there's a lot of comedy. The parrot at Luce's house is very funny when it spouts all these expletives and then Moran lives in a place called Turdy. There's some interesting thoughts on charity. Quote, against the charitable gesture, there is no defence. That's definitely putting the other side of the, the coin where it comes to, to charity. And a quick Google of possession in Malloy revealed a very interesting abstract by Eva Kenny. Quote, I argue that Beckett wrote Watt and the three novels as if possessed under the aegis of this surrealist preoccupation with automatic spontaneous text and wrote what and the french language novels as a self-styled degenerate using linguistic impediments ticks and repetitions in order to address the dispossession of the anglo-irish literary tradition after irish independence this is done in the three novels by means of an increasing attention to emblematic objects, the stone, the stick, the pencil, and their loss and disappearance until at the end of the unable, spoiler alert, only one voice remains. Uh, I'll put a link to that abstract below. So the, the idea of possession is very interesting. 
as Eva points out, Moran's quote, outstanding event of the first day is finding a cigar in his pocket and smoking it. Objects are important to Moran, just as they are to Malloy. Remember all that fuss over the stamp album and whether his son should bring it. There's some interesting ideas on boundaries as well. Malloy says, quote, though I fail to see, never having left my region, what right I have to speak of its characteristics. No, I never escaped, and even the limits of my region were unknown to me, but I felt they were far away. But this feeling was based on nothing serious. It was a simple feeling. For if my region had ended no further than my feet could carry me, surely I would have felt it changing slowly. For regions do not suddenly end, as far as I know, but gradually emerge into one another. And I never noticed anything of the kind. But however far I went, and in no matter what direction, it was always the same sky, always the same earth, precisely day after day and night after night. On the other hand, if it is true that regions gradually merge into one another, and this remains to be proved, then I may well have left mine many times thinking I was still within it. The blowing of boundaries is very interesting. This slow region changing is happening constantly in this novel. He's making very, very slow progress. On the next page, he describes coming to an impasse, the sea, but muses that, quote, don't imagine my region ended at the coast. That would be a grave mistake, for it was this sea too, its reefs and distant islands and its hidden depths. And I too went forth on it in a sort of oarless skiff. Throughout the novel, there's an awful lot of medical talk. Malloy talks about his body as if he's a skilled doctor. Quote, that my ureters, no, not a word on that subject, and the capsules, and the bladder, and the urethra. He has a huge interest in bodily functions and their precise categorization. And he's also very interested in memory. Malloy often repeats things he's already told us, such as his hat that has lost the lace to hold it on is mentioned at least twice. He's treating the text like a mind. It's an infallible text, most commonly because an author knows the text is permanent. They don't repeat things, but not here. Listen to this paragraph of a man sneaking up on Malone unawares. Quote, It was evening. I had lit my fire and I was watching it take when I heard myself hailed. The voice already so near that I started violently was that of a man. But after this one violent start, I collected myself and continued to busy myself with my fire as if nothing had happened, poking it with a branch I had torn from its tree for the purpose a little earlier and stripped of its twigs and leaves and even part of its bark with my bare nails. I've always loved skinning branches and laying bare the pretty white glossy shaft of sapwood, but obscure feelings of love and pity for the tree held me back most of the time and I numbered among my familiars the dragon tree of Tenerife, the perished at the age of 5,000 years, struck by lightning. It was an example of longativity. The branch was thick and full of sap and did not burn when I stuck it in the fire. I held it by the thin end, the crackling of the fire, of the writhing brands rather. The fire triumphant does not crackle, but makes an altogether different noise. It had permitted the man to come right up to me without my knowledge. If there's one thing infuriates me, it is being taken myself by surprise. I continued then, in spite of my spasm of fright, hoping it had passed unnoticed, to poke the fire as if I were alone. His discursion into tree sap gave me a similar feeling of being crept up upon when the man suddenly reappears at the end of the paragraph. It's brilliant writing, Beckett manipulating me and giving me such a scare as well. Malloy's got some interesting ideas on ageing. Quote, and I seemed to see myself ageing as swiftly as a day fly, but the idea of ageing was not exactly the one which offered itself to me, and what I saw was more like a crumbling, a frenzied collapsing of all that had always protected me from all I was condemned to be, 
where it was like a kind of clawing towards a light and countenance I could not name that I had once known and long denied. So I hope you can join me for the second part of Malone Dies and The Unnameable next month. I want to talk now about last month's book, Light by John M. Harrison. There are some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads. The Complete Reviews review was very interesting. Quote, his writing is remarkable. It often seems almost offhand, so easily does he convey everything, from complex 14-dimensional ways of looking at space-time to simple human lust, and move between stories, facts and ideas. Part of his art is how convincingly his fictional world is a given. Many science fiction writers feel the need to construct elaborate worlds, showing readers each piece of the puzzle, and too often thus making too obvious how artificial these fictions are. Harrison is certain of his inventions and feels no need to destroy the illusion by justifying them. Light is filled with chance and destiny, elusive and obvious, and for much of the book, simply too much for the characters to grasp. It's difficult material, but Harrison conveys it well. Ultimately, the story is also tied together nicely as the three strands come together. Light isn't a simple breezy read. It's dense and complex, but also action-packed and fast-paced. It's an impressive novel, rare proof of what science fiction can be. And Bradley on Goodreads said, quote, Surprising and grand. I'm always thrilled and amazed when I get to read a serious science fiction about the soft and squishy underbelly of the universe. The world building and the span of time and the characterizations are tops too. The writing is actually pretty spiffy too, with very clever ideas, connections between every chapter and deep mirroring going on, not to mention a thousand and a half great science fiction ideas and themes running around and deepening the tale. Thank you for those comments and thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got round to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I've discussed the second half of the trilogy, Malloy Malone Dies, The Unable in three weeks, that's the 30th of June, July's two episodes will be all about all the birds singing by Evie Wilde. So get that one at the ready if you can. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your episode app. Thank you. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the last half of the trilogy, Malloy Malone Dies, The Unable, in three weeks. See you then. (laughs) 